Welcome to Terminal Talk, episode 20-something. Maybe even early 30s. Who knows? <laughs> uh, here we are broadcasting live. Uh, in front of a studio audience. Ish. Uh, in Tech U in Washington, D.C. And this is a podcast on mainframe and mainframe-related topics. Checks out. And we have with us today Sam Reynolds, who is an ISPF expert. That's what I've heard. Well, I might dispute that a little bit. <laughs> I am the ISPF architect du jour. Um, <laughs> experts are many people that have been dealing with ISPF from a development level for much, much longer than I have. ISPF is a very old facility, and I've been the architect for maybe two to three years. That's uh, without going back and looking at my calendar. That's my guess. That sounds like an expert to me. That sounds like an expert to me. I yeah. can spell it. And in, in IBM, sometimes that's all it takes to get you the job. <laughs> so so um, you said a really important word there, facility. Is that what the F in ISPF stands for? That is. That is what the last letter of ISPF is all about. It is a facility. And it is interactive. So I've, I've, I think that's the first I, the first right. letter. <laughs> so uh, we've bracketed the acronym now. <laughs> right. We have the first and the last characters. And if, if, if I was doing a presentation and that's the, all that I had on deck in my brain, I would probably mumble yeah. in the middle of it. facility. And no one would notice, so that would be absolutely yeah. fine. Is the P programming? Um, not quite. Program. Uh, no. <laughs> If you're if you're um, in an environment and you want to be better at doing what you're doing, what do you need to do? What do you need to increase? Performance. Performance. No. no. <laughs> you oh, need wow. better productivity. Oh, oh okay, okay. What can make me more oh, productive in my job? That's that's why we never get it because we're not. Yeah, very we're not very productive. <laughs> so the interactive something is that what the S stands for? S- not system. Quite. Okay. The, uh, Frank got it right off okay. the bat. Interactive system, system productivity. Facility. It makes sense. It makes sense. That's cool. Yeah. So we're done. Thank you very much. (laughs) Hope everyone enjoyed that. (laughs) So, you know, how how does it feel working on the the first thing people see when when they log into the system? Well, I suppose they see the TSO ready prompt before That's they good. see ISPF. Fair enough. So Fair enough. I'm, I'm the second one, so I'm kind of have my feelings hurt, I suppose, a little bit about that. But other than that, well, yeah. you can have some pretty cool ASCII art on that that front login panel too. That's true. I've seen some nice art over the days. Of course, in our case, it's Epsidic art, but all the same. Wow, I'm just swinging out all really? over the place here. <laughs> and you didn't think you were going to have stuff to say. <laughs> I'm about done now. <laughs> I mean, no, but no, your point's well taken. It is cool because um, anyone that has been on the um, System Z for very long is familiar with ISPF. Everyone knows what it is. Everyone has used it. Maybe they don't use it a lot. Maybe they just use it a little bit. And, but, but then there are other people that have used it for their entire careers and span 30, 40 years, and they're power users, and they can show you all kinds of great tips and tricks and so forth. And we have... Uh, people at this conference that have fallen in that bucket, there's a, another session tomorrow that's all about tips and tricks. It's, it's not from an IBM or it's from uh, a, another person, a user that has learned all this stuff over the years. It is a very powerful facility. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice knowing that you're using something that so many people use, 
even though maybe the amount of use it's getting is declining over time. That's absolutely the case because it is a very old facility and not as um, strategic as some of the newer mechanisms such as the OSMF, such as some of the rational tooling, et cetera. But ISPF isn't really one thing, right? I mean, uh, it's it's kind of a collection of things. So it, ISPF does break down into components, and there's, for example, the program development facility is part of it. Uh, there's other, other aspects. There's something called the workstation agent, which we don't talk about a whole lot. It's one of those things we kind of mo- have moved away from over the years. But there's other bits and pieces. There's a lot you can do here. Um, the best comparison I would give to, say, someone new to the platform um, when I'm trying to describe ISPF, I myself came, when I came out of college, I had very little experience around mainframes. And so it would have been new to me at the time, or it was new to me at the time. But so, what I certainly had used and what someone in other platforms environments are accustomed to are integrated development environments, IDEs, right? And there are all kinds of flavors and forms of that. And ISPF gives you something like that. It's a place where you can go in and develop things. There's a built-in editor, and the ISPF editor is one of the most powerful editors you will ever see. Yes, it's old. Yes, it's part of a quote-unquote green screen technology, but it's very powerful. You have the editor. You have a file manager type of thing. You will talk here, uh, people... People like to refer to the pieces of ISPF by their menus, yes. the menu numbers. So from the main menu in ISPF, option three takes you somewhere. And if you know that the menu under that you want is sub-menu four, then you say 3.4. Well, you have people all the time talk about being in 3.4, which is the data set list. Right, SPF. So that's a place you manage your data sets. <laughs> and you, you, could, uh, you could, we could sit here all day, and I wouldn't be able to tell you data set list utility, but I would say 3.4. 3.4. got to allocate, too. That's 3.2. <laughs> so you guys are great. Why am I doing this? <laughs> and I, th- I think that's drilled into a lot of people's muscle memory, too, where I know, I know that I've asked somebody uh, a question of, like, how do I get to this? And they go, oh, hold on. I have to walk over to a, a keyboard and go, <laughs> It's, it's, you know, 2.6 or whatever, you know. Absolutely. It's like walking up to an ATM machine. If you just type your pin in, it'll happen. If you try to think about it, you'll have a problem. <laughs> it's all in the, the, the fingers. It's in the muscle memory. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of what you've got, the, the file management aspects. You've got the editing aspects. And not necessarily because you're a programmer and you're going in to edit a COBOL program and do that, but maybe you're a system administrator. What do you got to do? You've got to work with PARMLive members and update things for the, before the next IPL. You're rolling out a new level of ZOS, and there's migration actions that you've got to go update various members. Where are you going to do that? You're going to go into the ISPF and get to work. Find what you need from the data set list and then go into the uh, ISPF editor from there. So you're the architect, the latest architect. The latest architect. ISPF has been uh, out since, let's be honest, since before Jeff was born. And um, isn't everything done? I mean, what do you have to architect these days? Well, um, you know, nothing is ever finished, right? Um, and, and there's been a number of people who made those quotes about various things over the years. We have, everyone's familiar with IBM's requirement system for the last few years, RFE. We have very much have our fair share of RFEs. <laughs> As uh, will probably come out several times during this podcast, I'm also an architect for communication server. And um, 
we actually have one RFE, for instance, that has twice as many votes as any RFE that communication server has. Uh, so there's a lot of people out there that are interested in enhancements to ISPF and want us to see do more, and they keep they keep submitting these ideas. And the, a lot of them are really good ideas. At this <laughs> point in time, the underlying question you're asking is probably true. It does what it needs to do from a basic standpoint. But there um, being an, a development environment, um, sort of a green sc- screen GUI, if you will, uh, there's always bells and whistles, usability enhancements, consistency things. ISPF is a huge facility, and there's things that you can do over here in this part of ISPF that you can't do over in that part of ISPF. And so a customer submits a requirement and say, I want to be able to do this everywhere. So there are plenty of things to architect. Um, how much you invest in this facility and in these enhancements this, at this point in time is the question. And so is that a big part of your job, saying, look, I have a, a limited budget uh, because the user community that's using it is not growing exponentially, right? It, it, is a big part of your job trying to figure out which ones are, are uh, the most efficacious to do right now? Or? Ooh, nice word. Thanks. Yeah. I, look, I looked it up before. I've been waiting to yeah. use it. You got one of them counting everybody running for their dictionary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's absolutely uh, one of the jobs of the architect is requirements come in, you analyze them, you discuss them with other subject matter experts. Is it viable? Is it, what, what is the customer value? What is the value, to our vis, bit, or the value to our business? What is the complexity level? Is this something that's going to be a couple of person months or, or two person years? You try to figure all that out. And then you look at the current list of requirements you have and merge it in somewhere. How does this um, compete with all the other things that we would need to do, we would like to do? The problem with ISPF now is that we do have a very, very limited development budget. And um, customers that, have, that are um, very interested in ISPF and have watched the functions and enhancements we've delivered know that, for example, in ZOS V2R1, we had a very, very feature-rich ISPF um, set of enhancements. Really a lot of nice stuff. ZOS V2R2, we had a number of enhancements, but probably a maybe half or less than half of what we did in 2.1. Now, if we talk about history of ISPF, we, we can circle back to that, and there's a, a reason why it dropped in 2.2 that's a, a geographic reason, because we actually moved the mission. Um, but then if you look at ZOS V2R3, which, as we all know, just went generally available a couple of months ago, there's only a couple of major items that we did in ISPF in 2.3. So you can graph this. Clearly, there is a very strongly <laughs> descending curve here, and that re- represents a descending uh, investment level. IBM has not made a statement that ISPF is in maintenance mode or stabilized or any of those words we like to use. And the fact of the matter is, obviously, it's still supported. Obviously, as changes occur in the file system, uh, I've always said ISPF is kind of joined at the hip with DFSMS. If they do certain things, that could mandate a change in ISPF. Some things they do might be something we would want to expose through ISPF. Those things will probably continue to happen. But some of the more bells and whistles type stuff, the usability enhancements, which I I would look at and say, man, that's great. I would love to do that. I would love um, to have that improvement within ISPF, we are not as likely to be spending money on those in the coming releases. So that's just the reality. So from an architecture perspective, um, 
I'm the architect. I just don't get to architect many things <laughs> for, for my SPF. Well, a big part of, of, of being that kind of architect is is being able to objectively and uh, understand the business value, right? I mean, you become as much a businessman as a technical person, right? This is absolutely true. I mean, I, I, I feel like at times I think I've used the phrase that I'm a, I'm a double agent. <laughs> because there's times that I, sounds a lot more fun. I, yeah, it makes it sound like a really neat job. Yeah, uh, but that I, I want on the mainframe. I want to represent the customer to the people that are passing out the money, but then I have to represent the, the business to the customers themselves. Say, so if a customer comes in with what I believe is a very great idea from a, just a pure technology perspective I, I can see the value that it will be for him why it'll make his life easier and so many of the things in ispf being a productivity facility yeah. are things that make the customer's life easier so many of the, the suggestions the rfes and so i look at those and i say yeah i see your point i would love to do that for you then i have to go back to the business though and say yeah but in the big scheme of all the things we're investing in how do I justify that, knowing what the business priorities are and what our IBM strategy and directions are? So I kind of see both sides, and I have to try to play the middleman here on all this. <laughs> and that, that's kind of painful at times. Is there a reason why IBM doesn't say, look, we've gone as far as we want to go with this. Let's make it more of an open source kind of thing and give people an opportunity to to add some of those enhancements themselves? Or is it just – not straightforward enough to do that kind of Actually, thing. Actually, Frank, that is a very insightful question, a very interesting question, because uh, ISPF has a very vibrant um, user community. Uh, as, as we have this declining investment, you do see some customers that are very um, disappointed to see us not investing more because they have all these things they'd like for us to do. At the same time, ISPF is very extensible. You can develop your own panels and your own features and we've had many many people in the community that have done that and these things get distributed there's this thing called the cbt tape and i don't even know what that stands for because it's way before my time <laughs> but there's many um enhancements that you can go download there's kind of an open source thing and you can use and i'll give you a great example uh one, the requirement i mentioned earlier that is the highest vote getter amongst the ISPF requirements is for us to improve our support for a feature called PDSE version 2 member generations, which is something DFSMS shipped um, as an APAR to V2R1. And so it's been around a while now. I don't know that it's highly exploited in our customer environments yet, but it's a very, fairly powerful idea. ISPF supports it, and we allow you to work with generations, but our support for it is very rudimentary. It is to be blunt, kind of crude, and kludgy in places. All kinds of stuff we can do. I, I have a long list of things I want to do to make it better. But in the meantime, uh, since that hasn't happened, it didn't happen in 2.2 and it didn't happen in 2.3, there is a person in the ISPF user community that's developed this his own dialogue called PDSE Gen that you can download and apply and gives you ton of capability to work with generations you don't get out of the box ispf so that's exactly what you're talking about this is the guy that took the bull by the horn and said ibm is not addressing this fast enough i'm going to do it for them and there's things that you can't do without getting into our code but there's a lot you can and i think there's a push now from some of our more um enthusiastic 
uh, customers to say, you know, we're going to have to do this more. We're going to have as the community to identify the gaps that IBM's not feeling, filling and do them ourselves and generate more of these things like we did with the PDSEGN dialogue. I think you're going to see a lot more of that in the future. Uh, I'll give you one more example. Um, if you've, all you kids coming out of college or you use your favorite editor, it probably does something called syntax highlighting. Mm-hmm. And ISPF's editor does as well. But syntax highlighting is a moving target because <laughs> as languages change, you aren't highlighting. There's a new keyword you're not highlighting unless you go in and fix the code. If there's a new language that comes along, and we know that evolves constantly, um, you have to hit the code to highlight that language. So a lot of the ISPF requirements, we have a number of RFEs to highlight languages we don't support today. Huh. One of the, I think the second, believe it or not, this is amazes me, the second highest vote getter for ISPF amongst the RFEs is to provide syntax highlighting for SQL. <laughs> amazing, amazing but true. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's um, an RFE to highlight the language Carla. Most people don't know what Carla is, but it's a language that comes with the Z-Secure product. Uh, Very complex language. So we have these. They're they're valid requirements. We would do them if we had plenty of resource and investment stream. But as it is, they don't rate necessarily really high compared to some of the other things that I would like to do. So there is uh, a gentleman. He's actually an ex-IBMer. I think he works for Rocket Software now. That has um, did a session at the last Share Conference where he demonstrated how you could theoretically do your own syntax highlighting on, on on top of what we do. And it just needs more support from the user community to keep fleshing that out and adding the other languages. So I think you will see our customers run with some of those types of ideas. I hope so. Was that guy Ken? It was not Ken. Okay. His name is Pedro. (laughs) Pedro Vera. Can can we go back? um, We we talked a little bit about open sourcing some of this stuff. Is there stuff that we need to do to make it easier for people to do that? Do you see us adding libraries or something that help people do that? Or is that probably not even necessary? I don't know that we're likely to do that in general. The – they want, one of the two examples I gave was the highlighting thing. I think there's probably some things we could do to make it easier to to work with that infrastructure. We decided internally a long time ago we were probably not going to keep playing the game of uh, adding syntax highlighting to the ISPF editor for every new language that came along. And what we needed to do was develop a general highlight facility that you would supply the rules and it would take care of it. Now at this point in time, that's that's such an expensive undertaking. Well, there might we're, we're thinking maybe there's something in the middle there. <laughs> there's a train about to come through the door and run over us all. So you this know, could be you, a you might think this is a, an accident, but we want people to have the full tech view experience. So all all the sounds and the smells, you know, it's yeah. it's it's like I was there. It's like you're right in the conference. Yeah, we'll bring you some breakfast too if you want. <laughs> yeah, let's not do that. That'd be mean. Good point. So, yes, we could possibly do some things to um, make it a little bit easier uh, for certain specific activities, such as the highlighting. But in general, the stuff is there. People have been developing extensions to um, ISPF for many years. And when you look at what the gentleman did with PDSCGen, what to me is impressive is not just what he did, but how quickly he did it. 
I mean, he had a, a very useful dialogue in a fairly short time, and in over many more months, he's continued to add features. So I think the underpinnings are in place there for customers to continue the exploitation where they want to. Did IBM invent uh, ISPF, or did we steal? I mean, did we acquire it from somewhere else? Well, ISPF is an IBM product, um, and it's been part of ZOS or, you know, with MVS before that. To be honest with you, I do not know a whole lot about the history of ISPF. Again, we've had it a couple of years. What I will tell you is from a geographic perspective, um, it was developed in Raleigh for many years, which is where I'm from. Or Actually, I'm not from Raleigh, but that's where I live now, and that's where our lab is. That's where Communication Server, my other product, is developed. And... Um, ISPF was there for quite a long time, and then maybe a decade and a half or so ago, it was the mission for it was moved to the um, Australian Development Lab in Perth, Australia, and it was lovingly developed and maintained there for many years uh, and continued to grow. And the decision was made about again three or so years ago to move the mission back to Raleigh, and of course we then no longer had a. a development group there responsible for it so we had to grow a few new developers and get some new skills we still had a couple some people in our service organization level two and so forth that were ispf well versed and so they're part of that but um so it's been around a little bit the transition mm-hmm. from australia to um raleigh occurred during the zos b2r2 development cycle mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons we saw a drop in output at that point in time is because we were taking th- getting everything set up training uh, people that had not really worked on ISPF much before and so forth. Um, that's not what happened in 2.3. That was clearly a conscious de- um, decision to reduce the amount of development activity. Uh, so that's kind of how it got to where it is today. Your accent doesn't sound like a Raleigh. I was guessing northern Maine. Yeah, people normally guess the Bronx, so I'm not sure why you can go <laughs> northern Brent, Maine. It's certainly a deep southern accent, but no, it doesn't, it doesn't have the uh, typical North Carolina aspects. It's an Alabama accent. So I was born and raised there. That's where I went to school and came to IBM uh, after grad school in Alabama. So, so you're in Alabama, and you said, I want to uh, – when I grow up, I want to do ComServer. I want to do ISPF. You know, it's the irony of it is it's the last thing that you would have thought looking at what I had been doing. So when I was in uh, college, I was an electrical engineer undergrad, uh, computer science during my grad program. Uh, when you look at what I did from a computer science perspective, I had a number of focus areas. I worked in comp- a lot on compiler development. I worked a lot in artificial intelligence and expert systems. Uh, if you looked across everything that I did from a coursework perspective, a research perspective, everything else, and found the one thing that I never touched, it was networking. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one day, I actually was not looking for a job yet. I was uh, uh, still, I was working, beginning to work more toward a PhD, and I was walking past our um, placement office, and I saw a sign that said IBM's coming to interview. IBM did not come there regularly; they came maybe every couple of years or so. I saw. What the heck? Let's see what happens. Well, what happens is I ended up being hired into the organization that develops at the time VTAM before there was a comm server. Mm-hmm. And I looked at that as a big opportunity. To, to, there, IBM's willing to hire me to do something I've never done before. Yes, I've developed code and I have the basic skills, but I don't have, know anything about networking at all. So it was a kind of a ground up kind of thing. V- VTAM. What's yeah, I was going to say it might be a while before we have a, another comm server VTAM. The, you know, sub you know networking person in here. Can you kind of 
help us connect some of the dots in that area a little Chris, bit. What what does VTAM stand for? We want to bracket this again and start with the outside <laughs> working. Um, virtual? Yes. Facility? No. 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 Uh, <laughs> virtual. Addressing? Is the A addressing? Address. Block? Not quite there yet. Manager? Uh, for the M? Virtual telecommunications access method. Method. Ah. So it was um, <laughs> what it really is. And, and so let's break down communication server. Communication server came into existence in 1996, if I remember my history correctly. And it was the combination of VTAM, which was the communication stack that has the system network architecture protocol, SNA, oh, which yeah. ruled the world for, for several decades. But in the early to mid-90s, well, well before that, TCP/IP became a, the big thing, especially from in the uh, with ARPANET, eventually the Internet environments, and so forth. Um, and by the mid '90s, it was finally taking off in enterprise environments. So we combined VTAM and TCP/IP to form communication server, and we that gave us the ability to combine our resources from a services perspective. Uh, the device drivers can be managed by the same people. There's a common storage manager, those types of things. And so that's kind of – that's where it all came from. And ComServer and SNA is also largely responsible for driving the, the terminals, correctly? Is, is that right? Right. Well, S, so SNA, it's something else that's, that's very old. It's been around since 1974, I believe, something on that time frame. It's uh, – sort of the original mainframe network communication mechanisms. There's actually some older than that, but that's the one that's still around. It's been that long, if you can believe it. And it's still very viable. SNA is still used um, in most of the major financial institutions today. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you uh, head out this door and decide you need to stop by the ATM machine and put your card in, there's a very good chance. We all know there's a excellent chance you're accessing a Z systems processor, and that's how that, that the back end of all that's managed that way. But there's a good chance you're still using the SNA protocol. Most of those ATMs are behind SNA connectivity. Now it's been modernized to a great degree. It doesn't look the same as it did in the, in 1990 when I started to work for VTAM, <laughs> but it is uh, it's still SNA. It's still very much viable. Not using APPC anymore. APPC very much still exists. Now, oh yeah, yeah. For this, for for the types of communications I'm talking, it is probably something more along the line of what we call LU2, which is um, this classic. We also call it 3270. It's the classic green screen type mechanisms. It is what you when you go into an ISP if you're looking at a, you call it green screen. It's a 3270 display. It's an LU2 um, access to it and so forth. Can you just you see the door is open now? Right. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're, we're literally doing terminal talk right now. <laughs> this is great. So, uh, can you can you first of all describe? And you have described uh, LU two. What's the LU and LU two? Oh boy, we're really going down to a rabbit hole of acronyms, <laughs> aren't we? Logical unit. Yeah. And so you know a lot of this stuff. You look at it today, you wonder, but but remember these are things that came about in the seventies. And uh, SNA's original architecture had physical units and logical units. Uh, so the physical unit, or the PU, was the kind of rep- the representation of the actual device, whatever it might be in, in the modern world that might be an ATM. An LU is a little bit higher level. That could be an actual application. Uh, it can also be associated with the device, too. So oh. 
You get a lot of history here in some of this terminology. Right, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the kind of the, the thing about VTAM was that you actually, at the system end, had a pretty good idea of the device at the other end that you were talking to, right? I mean, the the connection between the device and the system was, was much more tightly defined than it is in in today's TCP IP world. Absolutely. Uh, that was back in those days. Uh, the device was probably connected via like a coax cable to some controller that might be channel attached into our physical processor or something. And and there was a very limited set of device types. And uh, you did have, when we talked about green screen, today a green screen, you're using a PC or a Mac and you've got a, a program that's running emulation of a 3270. Back then, it was this huge thing like with the old CRT type screen in it, uh, hardwired keyboard. Uh, it was a very secure thing because you couldn't really mess with it. And it was, again, it was hard connected into the, the mainframe itself. But, um, yeah, we, you were aware of that. And that's why I say the SNA is very different now than it used to be. It's definitely evolved. So much of SNA now is actually transported over TCP IP networks. You have the SNA is being preserved because you have an SNA endpoint device somewhere out there. It might be, again, an ATM device at a, at a bank branch. Um, and then you have an SNA application running on a Z Systems processor. But the path in between might be entirely TCP IP. It not only might be, but typically is. And then you're using one of two protocols, uh, TN3270 or my favorite, Enterprise Extender, which is a way to transport um, SNA traffic over an IP backbone. And so in the, back in those 90 days, days in the 90s when we merged TCP IP and VTAM to form communication server, at that time, people were using TCP IP, and they had a TCP IP network, and they were using VTAM, and they had an SNA network, and these were independent. Well, independent networks is expensive. Uh, it's costly to, uh, costly to manage and operate, and it's complex. EE-103070 gave you capability to converge your entire backbone on TCP IP, which was where all the evolution was taking place and still is today, but keep all of those applications you had that worked and you didn't want to replace them uh, so you wanted to keep them we allow you to keep them and we're happy you keep them because they're eating up um, system Z MIPS and you're, <laughs> which you're paying for and we get money so we're really happy about that so Thank you. EE, was, EE was invented to allow you to, to preserve your application investment and keep your SNA applications running on system Z this, this has always kind of intrigued me and I, and I don't want to get too into the weeds here but you talk about SNA as a as an environment where everything is really controlled and understood, and there's a lot of uh, chattiness between the ends to make sure um, things are what, what we think they are. Like handshaking. Yeah. So how how does that translate if it's going over? Uh, a TCP IP network. Is there something in the middle kind, kind of lying to each end saying, yeah, 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 we're good? Or, Well, I mean, not really. I mean, you have um, the endpoints are talking SNA the way the same way they always, always did, but there's software that has to be at those two endpoints that takes that SNA flow, whatever it might have been, and they haven't changed dramatically, at least not in the last couple decades, and it then encapsulates it within 
either TCP, in the case of TN3270, or UDP, in the case of EE, packets and sends them along. So you do have to have those, the, the two endpoints have to cooperate here. They're the ones that have the, the smarts to recognize the old SNOF flows and encapsulate them in packets that, when it flow across the IP network, no one's the wiser. It's it's just IP traffic. No one knows that it's SNA that you, unless you're really peeking inside and looking. Mm-hmm. Is there um, – this is dangerous because um, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, uh, I did a lot of the com, uh, communications work. Uh, so it, it's always kind of fascinating to me. How hard was it to make that – uh, programmatically to make that transition. If you say, I have these two different environments that I'm going to merge, a comm server, at least in the beginning, must have been fairly complex to, to bring those two different concepts and two different ways of communicating together. And two different organizations. I mean, today there's a lot of people within communication server that have worked on both sides. Probably most people in our organization have worked on both sides. But at the time, you had a TCP IP for MVS, it was what the product was called, a uh, group of people that worked on it, and then you had a bunch of VTAM developers. And now you basically merge this into one organization. And so, yeah, there was a lot of complexity, and you had to start trying to figure out how to integrate them from the perspective of um, common storage, the fact that now TCP IP was no longer going to have its own device drivers. VTAM had device drivers, and it was going to start using device drivers managed by VTAM. VTAM was going to take over the management of them, which would ultimately result in a simpler um, structure within us. So that was a good thing. Uh, and then, But then, to some degree, at that point in time, other than that, it was these two parallel things. They existed independently before. The fact you put them in the same package didn't necessarily change it dramatically. As we've gone forward in time, there continues to be places where we start tying them together. EE, for example, an enterprise extender came along around 1999-2000, and that became a place where we had to, now the two halves of the product had to talk very closely together. Um, The VTAM side had to send stuff across for the TCPIP side to encapsulate in UDP packets, and there's a communication mechanism that had to be put in place in there. So that certainly evolved over not a year, but many, many years. But but ComServer, when it came out, was huge, right? Because before that, the TCP IP on, on ZOS was um, pokey. <laughs> it had a reputation for that. The uh, TCP IP is in the early days of communication server, um, and I can't really remember release level here, an exact time frame other than it was in the 90s. The stack was completely rewritten. Uh, you used to have the you had customers that were using the TCP/IP stack before that that were playing games of running multiple TCP/IP stacks uh, just to for scalability purposes to try to make things work better. And um, at some point, we just bit off a really big effort and said we're going to do a ground up rewrite of the entire stack. Take what we've learned. You know, this was originally was a port from I think VM or something like that. Anyway, and now that we've once you've done a big project like that and got used to it, you've learned what you should never do again. <laughs> we were able to rewrite it, and it's been a much better performer performer ever since. Although it's something we continue to work on constantly. In this day and time, 
we would never recommend someone run multiple TCPIP stacks within an LPAR for performance reasons. There are people that do it for other reasons, such as isolation of workloads and so forth. But not. But what you're talking about, very true back then, and that was one of the things that changed, not really as much because of the comm server packaging, but because of the stack rewrite. Yeah, and it was – I just remember it being huge. I remember going, oh, my God, this moves. And the old one was – it was um, – it was depressing. <laughs> well, and, you know, communication server, we really don't have – as an architect, what one of the things you think about is competition, right, competitive analysis. And what's the competitor for communication server? I mean, obviously, System Z has competitors in the server environment. But communication server, if, if you want your System Z to talk to someone else, you're probably using communication server. <laughs> so um, – but back then, the time frame you're talking about, that wasn't true. There right. was – another TCPIP stack vendor. And I don't, I wasn't an architect, I was a developer, so I wasn't necessarily aware of the, the numbers as far as the market penetration of each. But they had a very significant market share at the time. Yeah, there's, there's kicked our butt every single time. Yeah. Performance, and, until ComServer came out. Yeah, once we did the stack rewrite and started going forward, that really began to, that market really changed dramatically. Yeah. And eventually they were no longer a significant piece of it. So, so if I can jump in here for a second, my my understanding of Com Server is, um, you know, I, I've started and displayed TCP/IP stacks as they're running, um, and I just learned that running a couple of them is bad. Uh, <laughs> so, not having the familiarity of of watching Com Server come in, um, and I'm kind of more familiar with the TCP/IP stack and all the all that functionality kind of being in the operating system. What should I think of Com Server as being like when I start a stack? Uh, what gets handed off to it? Where does it live? Is it part of the operating system? Is it a started task, like an address space, or how? How am I interfacing with Com Server as I do things with uh, network applications? Well, I can't. I can't remember if it was at the beginning of this podcast or before we actually officially started. But <laughs> I think there was a conversation about how. People in general just think about the networking capability being there. You don't think about it being communication server or even a yeah. TCP/IP stack. You've got your Windows system. You know it can communicate. The part of the operating system is the ability to communicate with the network, to plug in a, an Ethernet adapter or, or use the Wi-Fi, whatever, and it's just there. Uh, so, I mean, it's really kind of s similar, except that we in the ZOS world, we think about all the various elements, as we call them, of ZOS, and ComServer is one of those elements. It, at the very top of it all, has APIs. Uh, in the case of TCPIP, there are socket APIs that VTAM has its own set. And um, applications that want to communicate with the outside world need to interface with those APIs. They need to open sockets and send data over those sockets. It's a lower, and then you have the whole stack of um, code that it goes through, and at the lower end, you have to have something that communicates with the physical adapter that gets you out of the box and onto the network. In the case of a PC, it's going to typically be a, an Ethernet port you plug into, or it's the Wi-Fi adapter itself. Com, with ComServer, what we're eventually getting down to is where we can go off an OSA adapter, mm -hmm. uh, a Rocky adapter with our latest technology, uh, HyperSockets, if we're talking about LPARs within a um, System Z physical processor and so forth. Okay, that that helps a lot. <laughs> I'm, I have a lot of questions, but you'll never let me ask them because I'm going to start geeking out in the the whole com server space. Uh, <clears throat> one of my early jobs was to do uh, 
Advanced Program to Program Communication, APPC, applications. Um, it was, uh, I used to, again, make fun of the TCP IP because I could do things faster in, in APPC than I could ever do um, uh, on the old TCP IP. Uh, but we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, uh, forget the ISPF stuff, the, the cool communications theory stuff. Um, <laughs> We've talked a lot about kind of where things have, have, have gone. Where do you see uh, ComServer going? Where's the, you know, what's the, what's the new and cool thing you guys are looking forward to in the, in the ComServer space? Well, I mean, I would say in the last um, two or three years where, where the, um, a lot of our focus has been, it's been in two areas. One is performance um, from the, some of our customers saying we need better performance, we need better reduce CPU utilization, we need to improve latency, we want you to reduce the amount of time it takes from a, a packet to get from the API on one side to the other side, a piece of data. How long does it take? Uh, we want you not to just reduce it, but dramatically re reduce it. And so in the last two releases or so, we've had this huge investment in something called shared memory communications, which is RDMA-based technologies, eventually one that used an adapter and could go between physical processors or between LPARs. And most recently, we shipped one called uh, Shared Memory Communications Direct Memory Access, which is actually within a System Z processor between two LPARs. And the numbers, um, I did a session on this this morning, and the performance numbers, when you look at what shared memory communications, remote and direct, have done, are just dramatic from a performance perspective. I tell people that in the world of uh, networking, when you want to improve performance, you talk about reducing CPUization, reducing latency, and improving throughput. And if you ship an, uh, an enhancement that improves one of those, that's good. It's really good if you can ship something that improves two. When you improve all three, you know, that's the, the huge thing. That's amazing when you can do that. And SMC improves not all, only all three, but in some cases very, very dramatically. We all familiar with HyperSockets. HyperSockets is a great technology. Um, and SMCD just comes goes so far beyond what it does from a, does from a performance perspective. So that's one. The other technology that we're spending a lot of uh, effort on right now and will continue to go forward is being driven by security requirements. I think if you go off here and ask anybody in the out here in the conference what one of the biggest pushes in their company, it's all about security. Whether they're a, a RACF administrator type or they're in the network security space, and so you have all these people that are being um, hounded by auditors to prove that their systems are secure, that they could be getting a mandate from their management that is as simple, but simple to say, but as complicated to do, is we will have no traffic entering or leaving uh, System Z that's not encrypted. And if your job is to prove to an auditor that's really happening, how do you do that? How do you how do you find out that, well, yeah, most of it's encrypted, but there's this one application that someone yeah. stood up. 20 years ago that I, quite frankly, didn't know existed, and now I find out it's sending unencrypted traffic. How do you find that out and go chase that down and fix it? So ZOS V2R3 included a new technology called ZOS Encryption Readiness Technology, and since we love our acronyms, we will from henceforth refer to that as ZERT. That's a good one, though. That's I like a that good one. one. And there's all kinds of bad puns about desert and so yeah. forth and all that kind of, of thing. Of course. But they were just jumping out at us. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. want a ZERT shirt. Well, I, I'm try I was trying to have a preemptive strike before you guys got out of control. <laughs> Smart move. Too late. <laughs> so um, 
Anyway, so we shipped that, the first phase of that in 2-3. We have another piece of it that we're working on now that we're going to do, we've, um, have planned for delivery according to the availability announcement. Uh, we'll, we plan it for delivery in the, next, in the first quarter of next year. And I think there's sort of a roadmap of things we would like to do beyond that. And the whole purpose of this is to give this network administrator, the security administrator, the ability to convince himself first and then his management and then most and then the auditors that, yes, all of our traffic is secure. And not just secure, right, because it's probably not that simple. It's probably it has to be encrypted according to TLS 1.2 standards, this particular key length, this particular cipher suite, and so forth. And that's all, figuring all that out with the great variety of application traffic that you can have running on System Z is, is a huge challenge. We're trying to make that easier, and I think that'll be a continued focus area. And we see that again and again in the security space, especially um, sometimes in performance too, but it's enough, you know, it's it's not enough that you do it for us. And I have a, some sort of degree of trust that, yes, you, IBM, and, and Z are doing this for me. If I can't produce something that proves it to somebody else, it's it's not worth it for me. That's absolutely it. I mean... <laughs> You, if, you're, if you're a long-time IBM systems programmer, maybe you trust IBM is going to do the right thing for you, but that doesn't buy anything with your auditors. You have to have some <laughs> proof you can give them, some kind of log, some kind of output. And, Trophy. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> whatever works. The pervasive impression trophy. <laughs> well, I, I really want to uh, thank you, Sam, for spending this time with us uh, talking about comps, uh, ISPF. Um, and I'm, hopefully we can have you uh, come back and spend more time about what's really important, ComServer. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you so very much. I'm glad to have joined you. Thanks for inviting me. And this brings to close another fantastic episode of Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. If you want to reach out to us, you can contact us at contact at TerminalTalk.net or out on the Twitters at TerminalTalk. And we're always listening to the mainframe subreddit, slash r, slash mainframe. Mm, that's all I got. Old Man Charlie, run us out. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at TerminalTalk.net. That's contact at TerminalTalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off.